Revelation 8 verse 1 says, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. And he was given much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then an angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And the third angel, the living creatures in the sea, died. Third of the, excuse me, of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of that star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, and a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet and of the three angels who are about to sound. And Father, we do just pause and pray for your grace and the help of your Holy Spirit in this time as we continue now in our worship by opening our hearts to your word. Uh, Lord, we do just want to lift up together collectively as we think about it as well, our upcoming women's retreat in these next two weeks, that you would be preparing everything, all the women who are registered to go, Lord, and that your spirit would do a wonderful thing that weekend as they get away, Lord, that just a mighty, powerful work of God would happen among our sisters and that you would bring just a wonderful refreshment to each of their spirits. And Lord, we pray now that you'd be faithful as always. Speak by your spirit through your word, through what you've spoken here in the word of God that we hold. It's such a privilege, Lord. We never want to take it for granted. And so we just ask now that you'd give us attentive and receptive hearts and that you would speak by your spirit's voice and remove that which would hinder or distract us from receiving what it is you're saying this day. And we ask together expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, though it is true that we certainly cannot control everything that we experience, I have found that it is absolutely amazing how much we can indeed control by the choices that we actually make. Certainly no one can control everything that we experience, but it is pretty impressive how much of life we can control and what things we can experience by our own decisions. 
You know, the Bible tells us that this is particularly true in regards to how we relate to God and how we respond to God. The Bible tells us in Psalm 119, verse 2, blessed are those who keep God's testimonies and seek him with their whole heart. And Isaiah 45, verse 9 says quite the opposite, saying, woe to him who strives against his maker. So again, the Bible says, do you want to have a blessed experience or do you want to have an experience where you're having difficulty, hardship, woe, and struggle, experiencing, in a sense, a cursed existence rather than a blessed existence? And God says we can determine that by how we respond to him, that oftentimes we are the determining factor. And really, we see that displayed in our passage this morning, we see the outcomes, really, of two different ways of relating to God. Displayed even in this very difficult chapter to look at together, we see God clearly on the front side of the chapter being portrayed as a loving, concerned parent, listening to the communication of the prayers of his people, the voices of his children, because a good father cares about helping his kids. And we also see in the very same passage, God portrayed as a judge with all authority and with great severity, righteously executing justice and rendering due punishment to those who refused God, who've resisted his will and who have broken his commands. And it's a good reminder to us that it is never vain to seek God. It's never a worthless thing. It's never something of no value to communicate with God, to ask God for his help. God always listens. God cares. God's concerned. And he is always attentive to the voices of his people. In the same way, it is always foolish and extremely dangerous to resist God and to resist God's will. Because when we do that, That choice invites extra suffering beyond just ordinary suffering in this life. When someone resists God or refuses God's will, they, in a sense, invite punishment and hardship into their own human experience. We see that probably to one of the greatest degrees in human history as we read of this record at the end of the chapter of what's happening during the time of the tribulation. Again, remember, this section is now in Revelation describing this seven-year period this prescribed time period that is still to come that we often refer to as the tribulation, a time when God is mainly executing his righteous judgment against the Christ-rejecting world that has been left behind, the inhabitants of the world, those who are still on the planet after the church and Christians have been removed, drawn up into heaven, are there enjoying the glory and the presence of God, before the wrath of God is poured out. As believers, we are spared, the Bible teaches, and delivered from the coming wrath and this coming judgment that we're now reading about in these chapters because of the fact that we have chosen by faith to accept that Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God against the sin of the world when he died on the cross and he efficiently and effectively absorbed all the wrath of God. I see that very evident in the scripture. To me, if someone wants to believe we must still bear a portion of the wrath of God, then to me that tells me somehow Jesus did something that was inadequate because Jesus bore the wrath of God. 
the wrath of the sin of the world was fired down upon God's son, Jesus Christ, and Jesus fully absorbed that. This time period is a time period of the wrath of the lamb, of the wrath of God being poured out justly against the Christ-rejecting world because of the fact that they refused to accept Christ's penalty and payment that was upon him. And in a sense, now God has no other recourse than to still allow them to justly bear that guilt because they did not embrace what Christ did. 1 Thessalonians 5 says it this way. Concerning the times and seasons, brethren, writing to believers, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Do you notice the change in pronouns? You, and then he says, sudden destruction comes upon them. He's writing to Christians, and he distinguishes you them, a different category of people, the unconverted. Sudden destruction comes upon them as a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. For God did not appoint us, Paul says, to wrath, but to obtain salvation, deliverance, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, whether we wake or sleep, whether we're alive or dead, that we should live together with him. So for those who refused God's kind offer, in the same way that Jesus was justly punished for the sin of the world, if they refused that punishment and penalty that Jesus satisfied on their behalf, God must still justly punish them for the wrong and the guilt of their sins in the same way we would have been punished for that if Jesus did not absorb that. So the horrible coming experiences of this tribulation when God's wrath is poured out upon the Christ-rejecting world who refused what Jesus did, understand, here's the reality too, hard as it is to see these things and recognize what's coming on the earth, this is just phase one. It's only phase one of ultimately the entirety of the suffering where at the end of all things, they will then be cast into the lake of fire where there is eternal torment forever and ever and ever that never ceases and is something that lasts forever and ever. Now, we've been watching our Lord Jesus here opening this seven-sealed eternal scroll in heaven. And we've seen the first six seals be opened. And every time a seal has been opened, as it was broken open, a successive judgment to some degree, some form of suffering came upon the earth. We now come in our chapter here to the seventh and final seal being opened and the description of the punishments that fall when that seventh seal is open. Look with me back in verse one. John says, and when he, capitalized, he's talking about Jesus still here. When Jesus opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, in the opening of the seventh seal, notice something extremely unusual happens in heaven. And I emphasize the word extremely unusual. It says there in verse one, look at it, that there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. A time period of total quiet without any sound, no voices, no noise, just an eerie, awkward, deafening silence a stillness settles over heaven for a time period. Now, one thing we have already seen and know is heaven has lots of noise going on. 
So if you're someone who does not like noise, you're going to have a little challenge with Hammond. My version of peace is quiet. In heaven, the Bible says there's actually a lot of noise going on. It even says loud noise. So if you have a family with lots of kids, you're ready for heaven. You're a chaos. It's just going to be a peaceful version of that. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 4, we saw it, from the throne of God proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and the cherubim don't rest day or night, proclaiming, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The very next chapter, Revelation 5, which again still is picturing the throne of God there in eternity, John says, I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, this multitude, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom, strength and honor and glory and blessing. So since heaven is a very vocal, loud place where there's praise and worship and all these sounds going on, here we're now seeing something in verse 1 that is the direct opposite of what the heavenly environment is typically normally like. Now, I can't help but to wonder, was this the first time, maybe even, will this be the first time when on all of human history since creation that heaven goes completely silent? And I have to imagine, if so, that silence is because something very dramatic was about to transpire on the earth. Something very dramatic is now coming to pass, and it's a deafening silence. As this last seal is opened, heaven seeing and knowing what that includes and what it's going to bring to pass on the earth, on the inhabitants of the earth, people who God loves, who he created in his image and likeness, all the noise of heaven's worship comes to a deafening hush and total quiet comes over the entire heavenly realm. God himself maybe even asks for everyone to be silent. Maybe God himself initiates the silence. And John's trying to drive home the point of the reality of this deafening silence, which was probably louder than anything they ever heard before by saying it lasted for a half an hour. Now, that may not seem long, but again, imagine if in the midst of teaching, if I stop teaching, and I use a little stopwatch up here, and if for 10 minutes, you're already looking awkward. That wasn't even 10 seconds. Dead, total silence, a hush, comes over the entirety of heaven's realm, and for a duration that was pretty extensive, total, awkward, eerie silence comes over the entire eternal realm. I bet that silence, as I said, was louder than anything they had ever heard in heaven's realm before. It was a deafening silence that was dreadfully awkward and difficult to endure through. Now, why the silence? Because of the dreadful events, we just read some of them, that were about to come to pass on the earth, knowing what was about to happen to humanity who was being justly punished that had been left behind, seeing all the horrific events and the pain and the trauma, the terror of the hardship that humanity was about to be subjected to, the only proper response in heaven is everyone just being speechless. 
You have to wonder as they go speechless, is maybe everyone there with their hands over their mouth or, or on their faces or, or looking away just because of the incredible traumatic events that are now happening down on the planet. It's the reality of the magnitude and the immense severity of what's now coming. It overwhelms heaven. The gravity of God's judgment being poured out in this time Humanity's fate is sealed, punishment unavoidable. And here's the thing, folks. God in his great love himself is wrestling painfully with what he must now do as a God of justice. As a God of love, but yet a God of total righteousness, total holiness, total justice, he has no other recourse because he would then be compromising his justness or his righteousness if he did not bring just wrath and punishment. But yet understand, judgment is very strange to our God. The Bible tells us in Micah chapter 7 that God delights in mercy. That's what it pleases him, to show mercy. It tells us as well in Ezekiel that God declares, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God finds no enjoyment in any of this. In fact, there's a passage in Ezekiel, or excuse me, Isaiah 28, where it literally speaks of God's judgment, and it says that when God's judging, that it's a strange or an unusual thing. In other words, when God must judge, it feels very unusual to him. It, it, it's a strange thing for him, though he does do it, though he must do it, it's a strange and unusual thing. Does God judge? Will God judge? Yes, but when God does such, it's very unusual to him. It's very strange to him to have to go through that process. Again, if we just think of the reality of the love of God and the extent that God has gone through and that God continues to go through to draw people to himself, to spare people from destroying their lives, to reach people in salvation, to bring them to Christ, all the efforts, think of how many efforts God made in your life when you were on your self-destructive path. And all that God's been doing through human history and love and the giving of his son and trying to spare people and be merciful to people and deliver people and stop people and reach people and do everything he can from creation onward, then a point in time comes where after rebellion and rejection and rebellion and rejection, the time period comes when God's spirit can't strive with man forever and he has no other recourse. And now he must bring down judgment in a proper way as a good judge and the loving heart of God, no doubt, is troubled and concerned greatly. He's totally speechless. Heaven is totally speechless. You have to wonder if to some degree, perhaps all of heaven's population, maybe the angels, maybe all of the saints are looking and seeing in the face of God a troubled appearance as he now must do these things as he executes this process. And maybe it's very likely that praise and celebration and worship it just didn't seem right in this moment. So heaven goes quiet. Everyone goes speechless and silent. That's the only right response. And I think it's a good reminder to us that sometimes in situations, silence and saying nothing and being quiet is the right response. And there's an application in that. There are times when saying nothing is the right thing to do. Remember, that was the mistake Job's friends made. 
when he was undergoing horrific suffering, and they went and they sat with him, and they were associating with him and experiencing his pain with him, but then things went downhill as soon as they opened their mouths. And they started trying to give explanations and reasonings. And as soon as, soon as they started talking, that's when their help started deteriorating. Sometimes saying nothing is the right response. Remember, God does not always need my voice involved. He doesn't need me to always say something. Sometimes me saying nothing is the divinely appropriate response. Being silent. Doesn't the Bible tell us there's a time to speak? And there's a time to be silent. This was a time in eternity for this moment to be silent because these horrible things were about to come to pass. Verse 2, John says, And I saw now seven angels who were standing before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So here once again we see these angels now reporting to God for a specified duty Many times we see the angels worshiping, but as I said in our prior study, now we start to see angels engaging in roles and assignments that are given to them. And these seven angels are now responsible to blow these next seven trumpets. So we've had seven seals. The seventh seal now leads to seven trumpets. We'll see at the end of the seventh trumpet, it then leads to seven bowls of wrath being poured out. And these angels now are each given a trumpet. Trumpets were often used in ancient Israel and just ancient culture to awaken attention, attention to an important announcement. Often the blasts of a trumpet also would initiate an action, a response to a particular trumpet blast. So for example, maybe a battle maneuver. Maybe the trumpet was blown and that was the indication to charge forward or maybe to retreat or uh, to perhaps uh, operate and move in a particular direction. So trumpets were to awaken attention and to also indicate a next step or a next maneuver. And these trumpet blasts, we'll see, are intended to bring forth an action from the general, from the king, the king of kings, that he now wants to come to pass, which were sadly bring forth severe judgments executed with each blast of the trumpet. So verse 3 then goes on to tell us, and then another angel, different than the seven, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense, that he should offer it with all the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of that incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. So in spite of what's happening on earth, and, and, and this to me is very interesting, you have all these horrific events happening here on the earth, Chapters 8, chapter 9 intensifies. You think this is bizarre. Wait till you get to chapter 9. Like a sci-fi movie going on. But all these horrible events are happening on the earth. But in the midst of this, how do we see God portrayed as a loving parent still being attentive to the voice of his children? Two times here in verses 3 and 4, our attention is drawn to the prayers of the saints, God's people. Even amidst that eerie silence in heaven, notice God's ear is still keenly attuned to the desires, the voice, the needs, the requests of his people. How interesting. Utter silence, and in the next verse, God's listening to the prayers of his people. Goes to show us that sometimes even my prayers that aren't articulated outwardly, those inward prayers, the ones that are happening in your mind and in your heart where you don't say something out loud, God hears them perfectly. God sees them. 
God's fully aware of the communication coming from our hearts. God is always fully concerned and taking complete consideration of what his children are saying. And John now sees this different angel stepping forward here, and it almost seems in verses 3 and 4 like he's performing priestly duties. If you remember from the Old Testament, the operation of how the priesthood, we have references here to him handling a censer, getting fire from the altar. We have a reference here to him offering and burning incense. And remember, heaven, him, heaven itself is the ultimate, perfect, superior temple of God. In fact, we've seen from our study going through the Old Testament, remember, the Bible teaches that the earthly tabernacle and then the permanent physical temple were purposely to be constructed as a worship system to be built in a way that they would be a model of heaven's temple. When Moses received the direction, when David received the direction, remember, they were told that they were to build it in a prescribed way. And the reason is it was a template, a model of the eternal realm of worship. That in some way, that God's heavenly realm and the worship system in God's presence was to be representative of these things. Hebrews 8 says the priests who served in the earthly tabernacle, according to law, serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for God said to him, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Interesting, as, as Moses was receiving the blueprint, God says, listen, don't take liberty, don't adjust things, don't alter things, do things exactly the way that I tell you. What's the big deal? We're just making a tent and a building here. And God said, the big deal is, <laughs> that's functional for you, but it also represents something much greater to me. It represents, as a shadow and a copy, the eternal realm in heaven where worship is happening forever. And now notice as we see the heavenly realm, we see very similar things here described. Particularly, we see this angel in our verses here. It says that he's given much incense, and then he begins to offer this incense there on the golden altar. Now, the burning of incense was like a pleasing, fragrant aroma. As it would radiate, it would give a very pleasurable experience to those who were able to experience it. And it was always emblematic, the burning of incense, of the prayers of God's people being offered to him. And even as the incense would kind of gradually ascend upwards, it was a picture of the pleasing fragrance of God's people communicating with him. Psalm 141, verse 2, the, the psalmist says, Let my prayer be set before you as incense. And what a wonderful reminder to us that our communication to God in his eyes is like the offering of fragrant incense. In other words, it pleases God. It does something that brings a wonderful degree of enjoyment. Our prayers as God's people, he references them twice in verse 3. He speaks of are the prayers of the saints coming before the throne. And then in verse 4, he references again the prayers of the saints ascending before God. But the amazing thing is to realize, pictured here is the prayers of the saints of incense, here we have the prayers of the saints representative of all our communication to God, communication that has been happening, coming before God's throne. Some of it has already been addressed. Some of that communication is yet still to be addressed because sometimes God addresses and answers prayers immediately. 
And the purpose and the will of God is to immediately answer that prayer. Other times, prayers and requests go up to God, and sometimes God may say on that particular request, no. Other times, God may say on a particular request, not yet. And it may be something that will come to pass later. But none of those requests are lost. So here you have all these requests. Some have been already addressed. Others are still to be addressed. You're talking the prayers from Adam and Abraham through all Old Testament history. You're talking the prayers of God's people through all the ages of church history, you and I included, ongoing communication around God's throne as people are still communicating with God there around his throne in worship. And the saints even who got saved in the midst of the tribulation, which will happen, crying out to God. And what is God doing? He's always listening. He's constantly aware. Like a perfect loving father, his highest concern is giving his attention to his children wanting to know what they need and how they're doing and paying attention, enjoying being able to answer their requests. And even in these horrible events, I find it so beautiful as we're looking at all this sad, horrific judgment that the Spirit of God in the midst of this focuses our attention on God giving full adherence and attention to the communication of his people. That God cares about that greatly. All of our requests they reach the throne of God. There it is right there. They never go up and come back down. Sometimes it may feel like that, but all of our requests are reaching the throne of God. And look, folks, for you and I, all the more who are in right standing with God through his son, Jesus Christ, and we have the forgiveness of sins and we have a righteous standing before God because of our relationship with Jesus, we should be compelled all the more because we have a degree of access the Bible describes to come confidently to the throne of God in a way that those from the Old Testament knew nothing of. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. And the idea there of boldly isn't in a sense coming in a demanding way, like God's a genie in a bottle. I'm going to demand and I'm going to command and I'm going to name it and I'm going to claim it. I'm going to blab it and I'm going to grab it. Listen, if you approach a king you're not going to be demanding with a king. You're going to be reverent. What he's describing coming boldly is coming with a degree of confidence, recognizing that powerful king, he's also my dad. He's my dad. That king with all that power, he's my dad. And I don't know about you. There have been times before when I was teaching Bible studies and my kids would call me and I'd say, hold on a second. I answered the phone. I don't do that on a Sunday morning as a regular habit, but there have been times when I've been in the midst of doing things, but if your kids reach out to you, you're always available for your kids, right? You're responsive. It's what a dad does. You have a wonderful access, and the Bible says we, because of what Jesus has done for us, we can come boldly, confidently to the throne of God at any time. What an amazing privilege and that we can come with confidence, whether we failed, whether we're struggling despite our condition, right? There's none of that. Well, if you don't use the right words, you can't come to me. I never said that to my children. Until you can speak proper English, do not speak to me. Your grammar is horrible. If they knew well, they would grew up and said, Dad, your grammar is horrible. We hear it every Sunday and Wednesday. You make up words that don't exist. We listen to you. Why do we care what our communication is like to God? God just wants to hear our voice. 
He cares about the things that we would share with him. He wants to know what we are in need of before him. He says, come boldly to the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16. Of all the ways God's throne could be described, look at God's throne here and what starts coming down from it. (laughs) And the Bible describes God's throne to the believer coming to seek their king and their father as a throne of grace. That's what characterizes the throne of God, grace, God's kindness, God's undeserved favor, his blessing. And he says, come to the throne of grace confidently that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I need lots of mercy. (laughs) And I need lots of grace in all different forms sometimes in the needs and things that I go through. And God says, please come confidently and receive such from me. My throne is marked by grace. Look, let's remember when we come to seek God in prayer, folks, whether it's individually praying alone privately or whether it's praying together collectively as God's people, we're not just doing something that benefits us. It does benefit us greatly. But never forget this. We're also doing something that blesses God. It brings pleasure to God's heart when I pray, when we pray. It doesn't just benefit us. He's a loving father. We're giving him a chance to do the thing that he loves to do, which is to listen to his kids, to have communication with his children, to do things to help his children, to do things to answer and to act on our behalf. Perhaps if we honestly understood how much prayer pleases God's heart, maybe we'd be inspired to do it a little bit more because it wouldn't be just for our benefit alone. We'd realize, man, it really blesses my father when I speak to him and when I spend time with him and when we come together and seek God together, God is always wanting to listen. Right in the midst of all this eerie silence, the Bible says, listen, God's hearing the prayers of his saints. Well, verse five says, then that angel then took the censer that was filled with fire from the altar and he threw it to the earth and there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So before the seven trumpets start to blast, this angel, now who's attending to the burning altar there at heaven's throne, he's directed to gather up some of that heavenly fire within his censer there, it says, from the altar, and it says he hurls a portion of this supernatural fire from heaven's throne downward to the earth. It almost seems like that was like a warning shot from heaven, as if God was trying to initiate the wake-up alarm to humanity. It says he fills the censer with fire, and he casts it towards the earth, and look what happens as it comes down. It says there were noises, thunderings, and lightning, so it causes a severe lightning and thunder to break out, which was probably quite terrifying, shook everyone to the core down on the earth, realizing how vulnerable and weak they are in their humanity down on the earth. It also causes, we're told there in verse 5, another severe earthquake, where again, the ground underneath the feet of people is no longer stable. It's disrupted, realizing how completely out of control their life is in that moment, as the ground beneath them is shaking, causing panic. Verse 6 says, So then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Now these trumpets are going to begin. Verse 7 says, the first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. 
and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So as the first trumpet is blown, a great storm rains down, heavy, severe destruction upon the land, destroying, it says there, verse 7, one-third of all of the earth's vegetation. Now, as we look at the description of this hail and fire being thrown to earth, it reminds us, does it not, quite a bit of the plagues that happened back in Egypt when God was bringing judgment there in just a localized form. It tells us in Exodus chapter 9, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that hail with, will fall over Egypt on people and animals and everything growing in the fields of Egypt. And when Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell, lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. And throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals, and it beat down, the idea is destroyed, everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree bare. Now, that was in just the land of Egypt. This is now happening, notice verse 7, in a global sense. This is global judgment all over the planet to such a degree where tremendous devastation happens. It says a third of the trees on the planet were burned up and all the green grass was burnt and destroyed as well. Now, how God will actually allow the process to unfold of this hail and fire being sent towards the planet, some wonder, wait, is that a description? John in an ancient day is seeing a nuclear exchange and he's trying to describe it in his own words. I don't know that that could be possible, but I could say this, God very well could do the same thing supernaturally because he did it in Egypt and there were no nuclear bombs yet. God's not limited. The God of creation can do anything that is necessary. Interesting history reports, if you do a little research, already hail the size of baseballs have fallen to the planet before. Already in human history, God could even just pull back the protective hedge around the atmosphere of our planet. And even perhaps this could be a description of a powerful meteor shower coming blazing with fiery appearance towards the earth, pummeling the earth at his command. Interesting, he describes in the midst of our verse here in verse 7 that he says that hail was mingled with blood, he says in verse 7. Now, is hail mingled with blood a description of the fiery red hail coming down, maybe like a burning meteor? Possible. Or is it a reference to hail mingled with blood as a description of just the bloody carnage of what happens all over the earth as these massive balls of hail and fire come down and start striking human beings and the bloody carnage that it results in? It's interesting to note that it does not say that the hail was falling to the earth, but look at it there in verse 7. It says, hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and it says they were, I have this underlined, thrown to the earth. So this isn't God up in heaven just, boop, just dropping some hail balls. This says that they're being thrown to the earth. That's a whole other degree of intensity. 
hail and fire being thrown. The Greek literally speaks of being hurled violently with great intensity. And the horrible devastation on all plant life. It says one-third of all plant life and vegetation is burnt and destroyed. Now imagine the problems that would bring upon agriculture, upon food sources all over the planet, fuel sources, the economy. Plants are also very important to what? Air quality and air content, making sure because of vegetation, the way God's created it, that you and I on earth as human beings can breathe fresh air. They help regulate carbon dioxide and oxygen in the atmosphere to a level to where we're able to breathe without having incredible difficulty and suffocation. That's going to get disrupted. Imagine the intense suffering that that's going to cause. The food sources, the air quality that's going to be greatly deteriorated. Verse 8 goes on to then say, and the second angel then sounded, and something like, John says, a great mountain burning with fire, again, notice, was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. So John next sees this huge object falling from the sky into the sea. It could be a reference to the Mediterranean Sea. That was what many people knew in that day in the time period. It falls in some particular sea somewhere. But notice as John's watching it, he's using metaphors to describe it. He says in verse 8, it was something thrown to the earth that was like a great mountain burning with fire. Something like a great mountain burning with fire. Some enormous piece of land mass that was like a burning mountain that was coming, hurling towards the earth, most likely like an asteroid. An asteroid, again, is described, if you look up the definition of it, an asteroid is basically a definition of a small planet that is rapidly moving through space. A large mass of land that's moving around in outer space. Often we think things are all quiet and peaceful in outer space. They're not. <laughs> They're not. There are masses and bodies moving all around all the time. And keep in mind, right now, God's protecting those things from hitting us. God's shielding us, steering these things around. And now, note here, Purposely and forcefully, this large asteroid-like structure, like a mountain mass, is thrown, again, the Bible says thrown, into the sea, launched from the heavenly direction. And folks, I can tell you this, we've been hit before, they say, by different things from outer space, but ain't nothing like being hit like something like that. The gravity of this is way more intense. It says this is a mountainous-sized landmass thrown violent to the earth by heaven's power, crashing into the sea. Now, scientists say that if a one-kilometer asteroid connected with the earth, a one-kilometer asteroid, now it's a little bit larger than a mile in its size, it would produce damage upon the earth worse than a nuclear exchange. And that if it actually landed in a sea or a body of water, it would generate potentially a 200-foot-high tidal wave to reach the shores surrounding that body of water. We're talking about something incredibly intense, and that's why, as he describes the destruction, he says that a third of the sea became blood. Again, imagine all the destruction of of sea creatures, the carnage, things washing up on the shore, 
On top of that, verse 9, he says, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third, also verse 9, of the ships were destroyed. So again, all the ocean liners and ships and cruise ships, all the valuable cargo on ships of the earth, destroyed, lost, ravaged, all the loss of life, people who were on those ships. Verse 10, he then tells us of the third trumpet. He says, the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of that star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. So now we see destruction and, and pollution, notice, of all the fresh water sources on the planet. The prior verse talked about this landmass hitting in the sea. That's a saltwater body. Now he says this, this comes down, and it has a direct impact upon verse 10, all the rivers and the springs of water. Now we've got a whole other degree of complication. He describes this star referred to as wormwood, and that term in the language star could be used of any celestial body. So again, it could be a, a meteor, could be a comet, something like that being thrust towards the earth. Perhaps as it comes with burning fire, like with a fiery tail, if you've ever seen pictures of these kind of things before. But the bigger problem is it says that it lands and it has a great impact, not in the salt water, but it has a horrible polluting impact upon all of the rivers and the springs of water where it pollutes one-third of all the streams and the rivers. Perhaps as it enters into the earth burning, as it's breaking apart, potentially all the particles of it are falling in different locations, and that's how it's able to pollute so much of the drinking water. He describes the effect of it, calling it wormwood there in verse 11. And wormwood was a herb substance that was known to be incredibly toxic. In fact, the dictionary describes it as something that was used for centuries as a repellent and a general pesticide to repel slugs and snails. So it's some poisonous, toxic substance that ends up going into all the water, destroying a third of the earth's drinking water. Again, imagine the complications that are now being caused as the result of that. The stress of populations rationing drinking water, fighting over what's left. And again, this is just the first three trumpets. There are still four more coming. This is just the first of three trumpets Survival, if you're not killed by what's falling from the sky, is going to be incredibly severe and difficult because of all the polluted waters and the destroyed conditions on the earth. Verse 12 says, Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, again, all these things that give light to our planet, so that a third of them were darkened, and a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. Well, thanks for being so clear there, John. Look, the bottom line is when you look at what John's trying to describe in his words here, this sounds a lot like what we see many times referred to in the prophetic books of the Old Testament, of the sun being darkened, the moon being turned to blood. Something transpires, verse 12 describes, where again, one-third of all the earth's light sources are basically turned off by God. 
causing this experience where all of a sudden the, the light on the earth is diminished in a way like it never has been before. Now, again, think about it. We become very accustomed to, we take for granted the sun coming up in every morning, don't we? And the sun setting at night and the moon being out there. Can you imagine how eerie and terrifying if one day that just changed? If all of a sudden the sun didn't rise or the sun just had some kind of a bizarre darkening to it and, and, and how weird and overwhelming the reality that something is going on, very terrifying, and we have no control over fixing this. The greatest scientists on earth are not going to resolve that. And how terrified humanity will feel. Verse 13, he concludes the chapter saying, And I looked and I heard another angel now flying through the midst of heaven after the first four trumpets saying, with a loud voice, and so now you've got an angel flying through the, 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 the earth, in a sense, through the heavens, through the atmospheric heavens, saying to all of humanity with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, those still upon the earth, because of, imagine hearing this, the remaining blasts of the trumpet and of the three angels who are about to sound. So there's this great warning as if these judgments were not severe enough that still way worse things, way worse things are coming. And they'll be described in chapter 9 for us, the intensity, the severity. Look, as I look at the end of this chapter, one thing it clearly brings to light is what a sobering reminder, as I said at the beginning, how foolish to resist God. How extremely dangerous when people resist God and refuse God's will. Look, let me say to you this morning by way of application, is it possible even in your own life in some way you're resisting God's will in your life? You're refusing what you know God is telling you his plan or purpose is for your life or what he wants. Can I just say to you, realize that's not a real wise approach to relate to God. Submitting to God in faith and obedience is always the safe way. It's always the wise way. We don't want to invite more suffering into our lives than there already is. Let me say as well this morning, do you know someone that you love and care about, that you see resisting God and refusing the will of God for their life and still pursuing their own will? Can I encourage you this morning? You should be greatly concerned for that person. And you should be someone in love for them who with a degree of sternness looks them in the face and cautions them of the seriousness of what they might bring upon their life by refusing God's will for their life. The Bible says, woe to him who strives against his maker. Refusing what God's trying to say to us or do in our lives is a dangerous, dangerous path. This chapter elevates the greatest degree of that, but it's a dangerous thing on any level. And let me say one note as far as a really heavy passage. Keep in mind, one-third of all these things are being destroyed by these judgments of God. But what does that also tell you? Two-thirds were spared. That's called mercy. Even at this time, God's still trying to be merciful. He, in one swoop, could have tossed things from heaven and wiped out everything. He wipes out a third, but he spares two-thirds. Why? Because he's still trying in mercy 
to reach the souls of rebellious people. Man, God is patient, incredibly patient, incredibly loving. Let's stand together and let's